How's everyone doing? Good. It's our first week of Advent. I'm excited. I hope you are. I am. Uh, I'm. I'm excited because I love Christmas time. I love Christmas time. I hope you love it as much as I do. You might not, and that's okay if you don't. But uh, you should. Um, show of hands, real quick. Who starts? Their Christmas, um, their Christmas music in November. Good. This is good. I'm in a good. I'm in a good place. Uh, who starts their Christmas music in October? Who starts their Christmas music in September? Really. I thought it, okay. Well, a little background of that. When I used to write Christmas plays, I would always, um, I would have to start writing them in September. And so during that time, I'm like consuming Christmas music. And I just felt like that was a really healthy habit, you know, to keep up. So I start my Christmas music in September, the end of September, not like the beginning or anything. But um, next year, you should try it out. Anyway, Christmas I'm excited for this Christmas, for this Christmas season, because I think we need a good reminder of hope this Christmas. I think all of us have experienced a lot, a lot this last year. We've experienced a lot. We've gone through a lot. We've had a lot of changes. And I think hope is the right message that we need for this time. Our external circumstances, our personal worries, our unknown future of what's happening can bring us to a place of feeling like there is a sense of despair, like there is a sense of hopelessness. But for the church, we must always deflect that and move away from those feelings of despair and instead move to a posture of waiting. A posture of waiting. That is the hope of Advent that Advent reminds us of, is when Christians read the scriptures in light of Advent, we are posturing ourselves in a place of waiting and expectation. We wait with expectation of the one who came and is coming again. We are awaiting the king. Thankfully, we have more to identify with, circumstantially speaking, with ancient Israel in this time, and with all of the prophets than not. Because we are not the only ones who go through these significant trials in history. And we must continually remind ourselves through the scriptures that we have a Savior who is righteous, who is our righteousness, and who carries us into God's grand redemptive story. Advent is putting our hope in the coming King of hope, who brings righteousness, salvation, and security through his presence. And in this passage this morning, in Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6, we discover how Jesus turns seasons of hopelessness into seasons of hopeful expectation. So would you pray with me before we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that God's 
people, that your people can be here to worship you. And we pray, God, that we would keep this perspective, that we are awaiting the King. And as we reflect on this passage, as we learn from your scriptures this morning, would you help us see the ways that Christ Jesus has come, how, his, how he has the promise of hope, and how he is coming again. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So Jeremiah verse, or chapter 23, verse 5, and we're going to be taking these, these two verses, we're going to be taking them just kind of half verses at a time. And so what we're going to focus on is 5a when it says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David. Look. That is a very popular word, and that's a word that we naturally gravitate towards. I would even argue that I think that's one of our favorite words. Whether we know it or not, we respond to that like all the time, every day. Look, and our attention goes there, right? It causes an instant reaction. Look at this, look at that, look at all these things, look at all this pretty stuff, it's sparkly, look at all that, right? This is what we do, companies, people, Everyone is trying to capture our attention, redirect our imaginations to gravitate towards the thing that they want us to see. So look is when one desires for you not to be here, but for you to be there. We hear this word all the time, but after our attention is grabbed and our, and our imagination is redirected, what happens then? Most of the time, nothing. Nothing happens. We are left with the same questions, the same concerns, the same desires as before. But now we feel more empty than we did before because we have wasted our time looking in the wrong direction. And that's the sadness of consumerism. And honestly, that's what so many people associate with Christmas. Right? That's what many people associate with Christmas, is this is a, a time to look at the joy, look at the glitter, look at the sparkle, look at all of the happy things. But then you get there and you still feel the same as you did before. I'm left feeling the same as I did coming in. I still feel discontent. I still feel unsatisfied. I still feel empty. Because looking here, it doesn't provide the substance. And we ask ourselves, why did I look at all? Friends, this is the burden of the Grinch. You knew it was coming because it's Advent. I got to throw something in there. The Grinch, he hates Christmas. He hates the whole Christmas season, right? Please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. But yes, we do. Because the Grinch, he hates superficial consumerism. The Grinch is real in that that's what he hates. He sees all the who's. He sees people filled with what he believes to be empty cheer. He sees meaningless looking, looking without anything beyond that. And so he says, what is the point at all? 
But this is what happens when we look at something other than the Savior. This is when we turn our attentions, we turn our imaginations towards something else. We put our hope in something else other than the one who is hope. And if you want to see this practiced in full, if you want to see a perfect demonstration of this, look no further than Israel. Because Israel is our example of a country that was completely divided and looking in all of the wrong directions for hope. G. Campbell Morgany says, Israel's vision of God was dimmed. If she had not lost it altogether, her hope lay not in him, her one and only king, but her ability to either stir up strife or secure aid from the other nations. Our passage this morning, it takes us to a time when Israel was being conquered by other nations, and the country itself was in a place of complete division. It was in a place of what some defined as hopelessness. Actually, in in the historical scholars, they defined this time in Israel in two words, darkness and disaster. That's not good. Israel was experiencing God's judgment of their sin, and Israel was split into two two kingdoms. We had northern Israel, then we had Judah, the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was just gone. It was it completely invaded. It was it was um, everything was was falling apart. But Judah was in a place of division because you had half the people wanted all of the other nations to come in and say, "We will adopt all of your gods." We will be like you. We will bring everyone in. We can, have, we can do anything that you guys tell us we, you want us to do. We'll adopt anything, and we will change our identity to be more like the other nations than we will God's people. And then the other, the other side said, no, no, no. All we need to do is all of the other nations just need to fight each other, and we can stand superior and say, look at how good we are. Kind of sounds familiar. I I kind of hear language like that in our current nation. Whether or not they're saying those same things, there is an obvious sense of division. Because hope and looking is looking towards the wrong things. And enter in Jeremiah. You have half the people want to do this, half the people want to do that, and you have Jeremiah, a prophet called by God, in the middle. And Jeremiah is clearly called by God because in the beginning, in the opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 5, God says to Jeremiah, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. In verse 10, he says, See, I have appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and demolish, to build and to plant. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that is so helpful with Jeremiah is that with such a clear calling from God, with such an appointing and an anointing to be the prophet to Israel, 
no one cared. No one cared for 40 years. No one listened to him. He's given the title of the weeping prophet because in all of his ministry, in everything that he declared to Israel, no one listened. And he's caught, it's like this memoir of a conversation between a prophet and his God, saying, look at all of these people you have chosen, that you have brought, and no one cares. They keep looking this way. They keep looking that way. They keep finding their hope in this and finding their hope in that. And they move away from you. And here I am declaring your word. And I'm even declaring judgment. And no one seems to notice. Is there any hope? Is there any hope in anything? Should I keep doing this right now? And through this book, you have this, this burdened prophet asking, God, I know that you are the God of hope. But I could, I could use some of it right now. And Jeremiah goes through these moments of crisis. And I'm going to list just three examples that I think help us right now. First is loneliness. He was lonely in chapter six verses, uh, or in chapter eight, verses 18 through 19. I'm just going to read these out to you. He says, "My joy has flown away. Grief has settled on me. My heart is sick. Listen to the cry of my dear people from a faraway land. Is the Lord no longer in Zion? Her king not within her? Chapter nine, he. He talks about this discouragement, and this is, this is powerful, this discouragement, because he knows he's called by God, but he has such discouragement in actually in never being heard and never being responded to that he just questions his calling throughout the whole book. And he says things like this in chapter 9, I won't mention him or speak of him any longer. I won't say his name. But his message becomes a fire burning in my heart. Shut up in my bones. I become tired of holding it in, and I cannot prevail. This discontentment, this discouragement. But then he's also witnessing circumstantially around him. He sees evil and injustice. And he says, will you be righteous? You will be righteous, Lord, even if I bring a case against you yet. I wish to contend with you. This is him looking out and saying, you are righteous, God, but look at all these things that are happening. Why does the wicked prosper? It's a good question. Why do all the treacherous live at ease? You planted them and they have taken root. They have grown and produced fruit. You are ever on their lips, but far from their conscience. As for you, Lord, you know me. You see me. You test whether my heart is with you. So drag the wicked away like sheep to slaughter and set them apart for the day of killing. And you're almost left asking, 
What's the point? Even Jeremiah asks that question, why have hope when a 40-plus year effort in the same direction continues to lead to failure? And you may be asking the same questions. Are you tired? Are you discouraged? Do you feel loneliness? Are you tired of constant, reoccurring disappointment? Are you tired of walking in the same direction day and night to what always leads to failure? This is when we need to lift up our heads and listen to the Lord who says, look, the days are coming. I am bringing you hope, a solution. The Father's solution is this. In this book, in Jeremiah, he's in this moment of complete discouragement, and the Father says, go down to the potter's house. And he goes into, and he walks into this potter's house, and this potter is making this, uh, this pot out of clay. And Jeremiah says this, the Lord spoke to me and said, house of Israel, can I not treat you as this potter treats his clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Let this sink in for, listen here. Just like clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, house of Israel. So you are in my hand. The promise that we rest in, the promise of hope, is that we are never outside of our Father's hands. Do you hear that? We are never outside of our Father's hands. In your darkest moments, in your loneliness, in your discouragement, God is still holding on to you. And he says, you never have left my hands. And sure, there's going to be times when there are things that need to be readjusted. There are things that need to be sorted out. There may be even a sense of starting over. But I will always rebuild you and build you back up because you are always in my hands. That is a promise of hope that he gives us. When we are looking in all of the wrong direction, the Lord says to us, look, the days are coming. Remember that you are in my hands. I am here to build you back up and to keep you in my hands. The good news is that God does not wait for us to find this answer before giving us a solution. He does not wait for us to figure this out. He comes to us and shepherds us into his loving presence. Our response of God's grace is always out 
our response is always out of a provided solution that he has given us. What he gives us in our frailty is the promise of hope in the presence of himself. Isaiah 43, look, I am about to do something new. That is a truth that I think we need to be saying more often right now. I think in this time we need to say, look, God is doing something new while we await the king. So in seasons of hopelessness, God is not merely satisfied in stirring our affections towards himself. No, he is also set on stirring our imaginations. He he says, look, I am about to do something new. The righteous branch of David is coming. Place your circumstances, place your security, place your burdens, place your loneliness in the hope of the coming king whose presence will be the very definition of hope itself. And here we move from the promise of hope in the coming king to understand the presence of hope in him alone. This is, this is a 5b to 6a. It says this, He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Jeremiah says a similar phrase in chapter 33, verse 15. He says, In those days at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to sprout up for David and he will administer justice and righteousness in the land. A few weeks ago, Pastor Andrew, he was sharing this helpful word with us on Sunday about the presidential election. And he said something I'm still chewing on. He said, it is surprising that in seasons of election that Christians aren't the most stabilized people in the nation. That Christians aren't the most stabilized people in the nation, because we should be. And one question that's not being asked right now in response to that is, is what hope looks like. I would love our cultural conversations to turn from what we need to addressing what does hope look like. The presence of hope in a fallen world like this looks like stability. It looks like security. Being secure in our King. It looks like all tribes, all nations, all tongues declaring Jesus is Lord. And when that happens, the church is the stabilizing presence of hope in this fallen world because we know our Lord Jesus reigns. Our King is wise. Our King is just. We can rest in uncertain circumstances because we know that he is making all things new. We have turned our attention to him and to him alone. In us, through us, and all around us, God is making all things new. We are witnesses to the presence of hope in our coming king. Zechariah 3, chapter 3, verse 8 says, Listen, High Priest Joshua... You and your colleagues sitting before you, indeed, 
These men are a sign that I am about to bring my servant the branch. So what are Jeremiah, what is Zechariah saying there? All governments in their best moments are but a mere shadow of what's to come. God has brought his branch, Jesus, to be the presence of hope that will administer justice in its truest form. So when our hope is in Jesus, there's something remarkable that happens through us in the Spirit. As Jesus sends his Spirit to us, his stabilizing presence comes through the Spirit and through us, and then miraculously we stand before a culture, a fallen nation, fallen people, as stable presence, a presence of hope. That is what the church can provide in a nation filled with division and in time of uncertainty. In a time of worry and fear, the church can stand secure, not because we stand secure in ourselves, but because we stand secure in Jesus. Because we stand secure in the King who reigns. And that is what we say to a lost city. Don't look here. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. When we place our trust in Jesus, the Spirit makes us like him, thereby bringing us the presence of hope to others. When I was serving as a missionary in Cambodia, I remember spending, I spent most of my time in this orphanage. And it was this Christian orphanage. But the, we, we got word that the, the local caretakers in that orphanage, they were concerned about this little boy who lived there. He was this little boy, he was about seven years old, and he was mentally handicapped, and he was, he was mute. And there was these, people would walk into his room, and they would frequently find him, him hitting himself, and he would also do this thing where he would lock his entire body, and he would just be laying locked up on the floor, and people couldn't do anything. They would try to, they would try to help him. They would try to bring him any kind of relief, but nothing would work. And there began to be the sense of that there was a, a spiritual attack that was on him. There was a spiritual element to, to him that was, was deeply concerning to all of the caretakers for him. And this little orphanage would come to this missions group that we were living in, this house that we were living in. They would talk to the Christian school that they were partnered with, and they would say, please, will you please help us with him? Because we don't know what to do. All of everything that's happening seems to be beyond our control. And I remember this time of the caretakers, the orphanage, our team, the school rallying together to fast and to pray for him. And as we did so, not surprising, more spiritual um, attacks were coming, were coming to him through the form of 
kind of idolatry, this uh, spiritual um, idolatry and people bringing idols. And I remember a clear moment one time as we were praying for him, as we came in to check on him, I remember walking with another into his room to seeing something that I'll never forget, where he's sitting cross-legged in the middle of the room and surrounding him are candles of other small idols that the unbelieving community had sensed that he's being spiritually attacked. So we're going to place all of these idols to appease the dark spirits that are within him. And I remember the lights being out and the candles being on, and there's this little boy sitting in the middle of the room with his head down, completely still with all of these idols around him. And what what could we do but pray? What could we do but plead for God to give him some freedom? But over the course of the days, two remarkable things happen. As a caretaker went in to go check on him one day, when they would normally find him locked up like this, they open up the door and he turns to them and he just gives this moment of relief. All of his muscles relaxed and he was able to lay down and they found him sleeping in his bed. And the other thing that they found, unbeknownst to them, all of those idols, all of those small idols with the candles were all gone. Something just registered to the unbelieving community that this isn't working and without anyone's knowing, they came and they removed all of the idols from him. And they're seeing in this moment, they're seeing this boy experience freedom for the first time. Not just spiritual freedom, but they're seeing him experience physical freedom. They're seeing him have rest. But what did this do to those caretakers? When they witnessed that, they grew strong in their hope of the Lord. That their God reigns over all. And I remember seeing them have a new confidence in their Lord, having a new confidence in Christ that he can do all things. And this, this orphanage, the poorest, the poorest place in Badambang, Cambodia, became the richest presence of hope in the entire town because they declared that Jesus reigns and they were a presence of hope that brought freedom and liberation to spiritual darkness and to these orphans who had no way of finding hope for themselves. God drew near and he said, look, the days are coming. You have not left my hands. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Let's keep reading on in that verse, the person of hope. At the end of verse six, it says, this is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And that, that is a significant title that we should focus our attention on. The Lord is our righteousness. 
King Zedekiah was the king at this time. King Zedekiah, his name literally means the Lord is righteous. So it was custom for this time for the people to say, the Lord is righteous, referring to King Zedekiah. But here's the problem. King Zedekiah was very fallen. He was not a righteous king. So God is giving a double meaning here. In Jeremiah's context, he's saying, look to your nations. Look to your nations, to your citizenship is not ultimately in, is in this authority. But your citizenship is ultimately in the Lord who is your righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. This righteous branch of David, the coming Messiah, will be our righteousness because it will be found in him. And this, friends, is the heart of the gospel, that no one is righteous before God. We don't have enough righteousness within us to justify ourselves before him. But the hope of the gospel is in the person of hope. God, the one who gave his one and only son, is our righteousness. Jesus' righteousness becomes our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says, It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom and God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and our redemption. We no longer need to look to ourselves or to external authorities or to external circumstances for righteousness because God has given us his son to be our righteousness through faith. And that leads us, all of that leads us to, as we consider Advent, it leads us to the moment in Luke 1, verses 30 through 32, when Gabriel is visiting Mary. He comes to her and he says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, listen. I want to change that, that word just slightly. Listen, we can also say, look. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. This righteous branch of David is coming. The king is coming. He is coming and his name will be Jesus. All of these names have significance because all of them define the coming hope and the hope that we place in Christ Jesus. Christ is the son of David, this righteous branch who will not be a righteousness apart from us, but will be our righteousness through faith in him. And God says to us, look, the king is coming. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. 
was born as the King of Kings and gives us his righteousness. Jesus is the very presence and purpose of hope who continually reminds us in our seasons of discouragement, in our seasons of loneliness, in our circumstances that are far beyond our control, in witnessing evil and injustice, he says, cling to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest because I am the reminder that you are in the Father's hands because I I left the Father's hands to die for your sins, but I have risen again, and in me is your hope. In me I am your righteousness. So the very burdens that you experience, the very loneliness that you experience, everything that you feel right now is just a qualification for you to have faith in the Son is for you to come to him because that's all that you need is for him to say, let me be your righteousness. Let me be your hope. Stop looking to other things. Stop looking here and there. Look to me because I will give you rest. Friends, we do not know what is going to happen tomorrow. We do not know what is going to happen in all of this COVID stuff. We do not know what's going to happen. But one thing we do know is that our Lord Jesus reigns. Amen? We know that our hope is secure when our hope is placed in Christ Jesus. Because he alone is the one who gives us the stability. He alone is the one who gives us righteousness to where we can stand before a fallen world and we can say, have hope because the Father brings you an invitation to himself through his Son. The King has come. The King is coming again. Let us place ourselves in a posture of waiting and expectation filled with hope. You guys pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the hope that he brings us and gives us. We pray, God, that that would be that that would be the the recognition that the church is identified with in this time. We pray, God, that that the, the outside unbelieving world would look at the church and say that is a is a place of hope. That is a place where the promise of hope stands, where the presence of hope is, because they worship the person of hope, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your son who died for our sins but rose again and brings us this message we so desperately need right now. I pray, Father, against discouragement. I pray against loneliness. 
and the evil and injustices in the world, Lord, would you remind us that as we see it, we would never lose sight of the fact that we are, have never left your hands. We love you and we thank you for your grace. In Christ's name, amen.